What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The inflation guessing game. As pressures have eased somewhat, the bulls have taken over Wall Street. But one market strategist says, hold on, inflation's going to be stubbornly persistent, and growth stocks will come back down to earth. And some of them really have this week already. We'll delve into it. Plus, streaming, screaming, and is it curtains down for one major theater chain? We'll dig into some of the biggest media headlines and what they could be telling us about where the world of entertainment is heading. And three buys and a bail with kind of a consumer bent. The name that Gina Sanchez says is crushing it on all fronts and will continue to even in a slower economy. But we begin with today's markets and let's start with the Nasdaq, which is down almost 2% right now, a 225 point drop. Meanwhile, the S&P down 1% back to 42.40 and the Dow Industrials Call it the outperformer. It's only down half of a percent. As I mentioned, a lot of pressure on some of the growthier parts of the market as interest rates have moved up substantially. Uh, Also, we have options expiration that's been adding to the volatility. And if we close at these levels, the Nasdaq will post a weekly loss for the first time in five weeks, believe it or not. Here's the 10-year yield, 297. I mean, we're close to cracking back around the 3% mark, which is pretty extraordinary given the moves we've seen not just this week since we were down below 280, uh, but really over the last several weeks now. So this is certainly the area to watch. We had a sudden sell-off overnight in Bitcoin as well, sending that to a three-week low below 22K. We're still well below that level now. Uh, Not much news flow, but that's an 8% drop. And it's been a tough week for the ARK-K Innovation Fund, a 13% drop with Unity, Teladoc, Roblox, Coinbase all skidding this week. This is one of the worst weeks ARK has had of the year. Meta also seeing losses after Morgan Stanley cuts its price target, citing their declining U.S. time spent trends and the low monetization of reels. Meta 168 today down almost 4%. So it's been one of those weeks where the data can give you whiplash. Let's review before we bring in my next guest. On Monday, the Empire State Manufacturing Index, terrible. We all remember, set the tone. We thought huge miss at negative 31. That's why bond yields were so low back then. The same day, the NAHB numbers also coming in with a huge miss. That's the home builder sentiment. These are seen as leading gauges, so obviously not a great sign. But fast forward to Tuesday, industrial production showed better than expected strength. It's been one of the key pillars throughout this expansion. Then the all-important core retail sales data also coming in stronger than anticipated and a welcome sign of health for the consumer. And Thursday, perhaps the most important leading economic gauge, jobless claims actually got better last week with fewer of them filed. On that note, Aneta Markowska is chief financial economist at Jefferies. Aneta, welcome. This week ended very differently than it began. And what do you think the message is here? Look, it's it's obviously a mixed picture. Housing still very weak. I think continue will continue to move down. Uh, but to me, um, the consumer is very important. And it really does look like we hit an inflection point in July um, with gas prices declining, inflation basically stalling. Um, 
Real wages increased in July by half a percent month over month. And that was the first or the largest increase since 2000. So this narrative around negative real wages squeezing the consumer, um, that's that's inflecting and that's starting to move the other way. Um, in August, real wages will be up again almost certainly because inflation is on track to actually contract. Our models suggest the CPI will be down about one to two tenths in August. And so, again, that, that'll drive another increase in real wages. And I think that sets the stage for a, a reacceleration in real consumption. There's no evidence that nominal spending is slowing. Um, and really a big reason for that squeeze in the second quarter was was just this massive price shock, which is now clearly reversing. So, you know, whereas I think consensus is looking for that downward momentum to just to continue to accelerate to the downside, um, I think the surprise in the third quarter is actually that real GDP is going to accelerate pretty meaningfully. Yeah, and you've been correct about that um, up to this point. And I think speaking of setting the stage, we have Jackson Hole next week. We're already getting a lot of very pointed, I would call it, Fed speak. It's kind of refreshing, actually, to hear Fed members uh, sort of popping off about inflation the way that they are. But then there are um, discussions about whether there's a split at the Fed or what next week might hold. So what are your expectations? Look, there's no question the Fed will will, will maintain the very hawkish message. Um, but I think you have to sort of break it down, right? There is a question of how high will they ultimately have to go. And that's really what they've been pounding the table on, right? Um, suggesting the terminal rate might have to rise to 4% and then stay there for a while. Uh, but they haven't been as aggressive in terms of, you know, talking about uh, just continuing to accelerate hikes. In fact, I think the message with respect to the pace of hikes has been a little bit more balanced. We saw that in the minutes, um, you know, the Fed now understanding or underscoring the two-sided nature of risks. They're obviously aware of, of being behind the curve, but they're also worrying about maybe moving a little bit too far given the long policy lags and, and what has already been delivered. So, um, you know, I think for the September meeting, it's still a very, very close call. We're actually leaning toward 50 uh, because we, you know, we just see inflation, uh, the slowdown in inflation, the declines in inflation expectations, sort of giving the Fed a little bit more wiggle room and allowing them to move um, a bit less aggressively. And, and frankly, it makes sense now that we're approaching uh, the neutral sort of rate territory. I guess my final question, and it's not maybe necessarily one you can answer, but it's does it make sense to you the behavior of interest rates? And we see how sensitive they are to this recession argument, right? Weak data on Monday, we were below 280. You know, stronger data by today. And with the Fed speak, we're basically back at 3%. And, you know, we've been range bound, but then we, we keep kind of having this upward pressure. Maybe some people are saying it's more uh, what's coming out of Europe. But what what's your gut feeling about it? So I think directionally it makes sense, right? Again, my base case is that that we'll get to a 4% funds rate by March, um, and, and certainly the market isn't yet priced for that. So I think that the, the fact that we're repricing in that direction is not surprising. The timing is a little bit surprising because, you know, the market sort of spent the better part of the past month ignoring Fed officials who were saying, hey, terminal rates are too low, we're not right. going to be cutting next year. Um, and all of a sudden the markets are listening this week. Um, so the question is, what changed? I think the CPI numbers out of the UK uh, maybe sort of spooked the market a little bit. Um, and but I don't. I, I think the market will 
um, have a hard time getting to that 4% terminal rate uh, being priced into the curve until we actually get closer to 2023. Just, there is, you know, the part of it is maybe a misunderstanding of the Fed's reaction function, but the market's also having a lot of doubts about the Fed's ability to hike next year or continue to hike next year um, and, and the economy's ability to withstand those hikes. And I think, and I think, you know, the market just won't have the confidence in that until we get quite a bit closer to 2023 um, and, and kind of get confirmation that the economy is still standing. Yeah, and it, it's an unusual feeling. We usually talk about, you know, we're pricing in events three and six months from now. And what you're saying is this is going to take so much convincing for investors that it basically will have to happen in real time. And then we'll have to just see the fallout uh, in that case. Annetta, great to have you. Thanks for your time today. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. Annetta Markowska of Jefferies. Don't miss our live coverage from the Fed's annual Jackson Hole Summit next week. We'll be in Wyoming, where Chair Powell is set to speak Friday morning. Steve Leisman will be all over it. We cannot wait for that, and you definitely don't want to miss it. Let's turn to the markets now, where my next guest warns, kind of like we heard from Annetta, that inflation could stay high longer than expected, which is also what we're hearing out of certain Fed members these days. Which Fed actions will prove most supportive for the markets? Let's ask Charlie Bobrinskoy. He's the vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. All right, Charlie. You know, I guess the question is, there's often perceived to be this trade-off, right? You know, the Fed can be a little more dovish in the near term, maybe. It, you know, Where do you see it as them having the greatest bang for the buck for the markets? Um, and, and what's the right course they should take if for investors who want to see positive, you know, returns on risk assets uh, for the next several years here? Well, uh, there's the right course that I think they should take, and then there's the course that I expect them to take. And unfortunately, those aren't, aren't the same right now. The, the Fed got embarrassed. The Fed officials who said there was no inflation and then when there clearly was inflation said that it would tra be transitory. And now that it's clearly not transitory, they're trying to say that it's all about an overheated economy. It's not about an overheated economy. The economy is not overheated. It's about way too much money supply and way too large deficits and way too much stimulus. Those are what's caused inflation, and it's going to take a while for it to come down. So the short answer is they should do nothing to provoke a recession. They should not be so draconian in their policies that they send us into a recession because this economy on its own is in reasonable shape. But I am worried. They were embarrassed, and they're going to try and prove that they've, they've got it now and that they're going to do some hawkish things. So I am worried about what they're going to do. Meaning you think they're going to kind of overdo it just to make the point of, of being, you know, hey, we're really serious about inflation. I wonder, and this is going to sound crazy, but would even that be a good thing in the long run? Look, it is a, you would know better than anybody the risk that inflation stays persistent here with everything we're seeing in this bizarre labor market and the wage pressures. Maybe it's not the worst thing for them to err on that side versus doing too little. So let's just talk about wage pressures for a little while. Wages are going up at less than the rate of inflation. Wages have gone up about 5% over the last year, and inflation's gone up 8%. Wages went up about 3% last year when inflation was about 7.5%. So there is no real wage explosion. That's just not true. And so I, I don't want the Fed to cool down the economy. The economy is kind of already cool on its own. I don't think it's in recession, but it's not overheated. So the short answer is I don't want them 
being aggressive to to create a recession that otherwise wouldn't occur. Maybe the way I'd say it, and then we can move off the topic so we don't bore people to death here, but is it possible that inflation started the wage pressures to some extent? Obviously, there's mix, there's pandemic, but we know people responded to headline inflation by with sort of bidding that up. But is it possible now that the tightness in the labor market and those pressures are what pulls the inflation rate higher, that we've had a complete role reversal here. I mean, that's what it feels like is the risk that, yes, you know, 6% didn't drive us to 10% inflation, but it could keep us from going to 2 No, that's 100% right. That's why we're not going to have no inflation going forward. That's why we're going to have 5% at least over the next 12 months is because people who've been burned by not getting a real increase in their wages in a tightened market are now demanding real increases in their compensation, which they should, which they're entitled to. And so that's why it's not going to zero. That's why inflationary expectations matter. Believe me, I'm not downplaying any of that. I'm just, we're talking about the Fed and what the Fed should do and what the Fed should not do is pretend like we have an overheated economy, which we don't. All right. I want to get into a whole nominal GDP thing now, too. But listen, one of your stocks is very much in the news today, and I I do want to get to that, steal a little bit from our next chat even, to do so. Madison Square Garden Entertainment. Looks like they're looking at spinning off a bunch of stuff. Just give me, you've been on the show talking about why you like this stock. Is this a move that you're happy uh, to see? It's a move that reflects what I believe, which is that the stock is ridiculously cheap. We think the stock, uh, which I talked about a week ago, and I did not know that this was coming. Believe me, they had not hinted that they were going to break up the company. But they're doing this because the stock is clearly, in their judgment and in my judgment, worth more than 100, and it's trading in the mid-60s. And so they know that the market doesn't like the sphere in Las Vegas, which I like. So they're going to separate out the asset that people don't like, and they're going to leave alone the asset that everybody loves, which is Madison Square Garden in New York. Frankly, the numbers that came out have been excellent. The numbers that came out of Madison Square Garden sports were wonderful. They made a lot of money with the Knicks and the Rangers this year. These are great businesses that are going to hold up in an inflationary environment. Quality real estate does well in an inflationary environment. Sports teams do well in an inflationary environment. The sphere is going to get done. They're going to isolate that. And those of us who like it will own it. So will the sphere, and sort of final point on this, but so my understanding is they're going to spin out the venues, they're going to spin out the entertainment, they're going to spin out the licensing. What's going to be left then, just the sphere? No, that, so this is what's tricky. When they say uh, spin out the um, venues, they're not spinning out Madison Square Garden. Got it. They're spinning out, think of, the way to think of it is they're isolating the sphere and the restaurants. Huh. Everything else, Madison Square Garden Network, Madison Square Garden itself will stay. And so they're going to isolate Madison Square Garden, uh, mess the sphere. I think, I have to admit, this is very complicated what they announced. <laughs> and this is why that we're having troubles with this. But that, the point of this is to let people who don't like the sphere still own Madison Square Garden. Very, very interesting. All right, final word then, Charlie. There are other stocks you like. Uh, energy could very well turn out to be the spoil sport for the back half of the year. Uh, do you want to just kind of comment on energy prices and how that's going to kind of go back to everything we've talked about from the consumer to the Fed to the markets. Yes. And this comes back to with people thinking that inflation is going to be go away. And so oil prices are going to go down a lot in conjunction with a a weak economy. I don't believe any of that. I think the economy is going to be okay. Demand for oil. There's not been enough exploration for oil and gas. So prices are going to be high. The name Apache that I own is trading at three times earnings. That assumes a massive drop in the price of oil. They are going to print money in this environment with natural gas at over $9. They are going to make a lot of money. 
uh, in something called Alpine High, which is a natural gas discovery that they have. So oil stocks, I think, can do very well in this inflationary environment. I can't believe they're at three times earnings, and that's after being up 35% this year. Just crazy. It reminds me of the builders, but I'm not going to go there. Charlie, thanks very, very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. We'll miss you. Have a great maternity leave. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Charlie Babrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Don't miss a CNBC special battle for the consumer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time, hosted by our own Courtney Reagan. Uh, she'll break down this week's earnings, the spending data. We got so much of it. Uh, try to figure out what it all means for the consumer from here. Again, that's tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, a special edition of Three Buys into Bail to cap off this busy week of retail earnings. And with the XRT on pace for its best month in a year and a half, our trader has some opportunities for investors. But first, new data from Nielsen suggests viewers watched more on streaming than on cable for the first time ever last month. Does it mark a turning point in the media landscape? We'll debate. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets where we're still seeing uh, the worst performance in the Russell 2000s down 2%, the Nasdaq down almost that much, the Dow down half a percent, and that 10-year yield up at 297. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. The media world undergoing some major shifts right now from streaming success to stage fright to movie meltdown. Let's start with Nielsen figures showing for the first time ever, viewers spent more time streaming than they did watching cable TV in July. It wasn't a wide margin, but it was still a win. 34.8% for streaming, 34.4% for cable TV. Let's bring in Ed Lee. He's media reporter for The New York Times and a CNBC contributor. Ed, great to have you here. Can't wait to get your thoughts on all of this. And it just, I mean, look, it's obvious even the content companies, they're betting on streaming uh, as their future. Yes, that, that's been the bet for a while now, ever since Netflix sort of reordered the world. And everyone's sort of been at first dipped their toes, but then going uh, full stream, I guess you could call it. So we've seen this story before. We knew this was going to be happening, right? I think this is an interesting milestone. Um, it's, they just sort of edge past cable. Um, but the key to the key to really the way to think about this is, you know, this is a gradual shift. This is not like a, a thing where it's a flip of a switch and all of a sudden now everyone's watching streaming instead of regular TV. People will continue to watch regular TV, especially broadcast, given their hold over the NFL. I mean, they just renewed a, a hmm. media rights deal with the NFL that costs like $10 billion a year. So people are still going to be tuning into broadcast and probably still some cable given the sports that are still on there as well. It's just 
it's more a question of how much sports is going to remain versus how much more, you know, you want to watch everything else on, on all the other streamers. It's a great point because actually it was this summer in kind of the, the sports quiet period that I felt like our household made the switch. And even something we were watching the Tour de France and it's on Peacock, the NBC streaming service. Yeah. And next thing you know, we're on that and then watching other stuff. And it was like, wow, I, I felt we can be dinosaurs. But I felt like, no, this is kind of we've we've made the leap. And the sports tell uh, test this fall will be a big one. I mean, Amazon will have NFL games so it's I'm, I'm not sure yes, how relevant exactly. yeah I mean and, and those Nielsen ratings suggest that they're this this is the future Amazon's going to have Nielsen ratings and advertising and even for sports it feels like it's going to be all about streaming I think you, you make a great point. I think, you know, to the extent that streaming is really, really winning, just in terms of hearts and minds, it's the sports. You know, I, I tune into Peacock for Tour de France as well, as well as a Premier League. It's huge on Peacock. You know, the other streamers as well, whether it's ESPN Plus or, you know, uh, I think Paramount Plus has sports as well. Whenever I'm tuning into a streaming channel, it's going to be for the sports first. So I think that's where that's where the, uh, the the main sort of draw is going to be. Everything else is sort of ancillary to that. Yeah, and then and then we're, I didn't even know there was going to be a Tour de France Femme, you know. And then and then I'm watching that. I mean, it's just it. Anyway, it was a, it was kind of a fun experiment in the whole thing. But it's obviously more than an experiment as it as it looks like it's taking a taking over the landscape. Speaking of the landscape, what's going on with MSG? We talked about this with Charlie Babrinskoy last hour, but a spinoff of Madison Square Garden. Uh, shares of MSGE are popping today after they announced they're exploring the spinoff of the live entertainment business that has the venues, entertainment bookings, and the licensing agreement with the Knicks, Rangers, and regional sports networks. Five and a half percent pop in the shares, Ed. What is this really all about? Yeah, so I, I, I watched the segment earlier. I think Charlie's right. I think it's it's a response to investors not liking the weird mix of businesses that were in this. I mean, they spun off, they split off the entertainment and the sports business uh, two years ago, and the investors seemed to like that. Now it's like, well, why do you have this weird restaurant and sort of Las Vegas business tied into this? Like, what does that really mean? Especially during the pandemic, when a lot of sort of live and hospitality things were just not doing that well. So fine, Jim Dolan, you know, he, he responded. He said, okay, let's split this thing off now. Uh, and you have the restaurants in one one corner, and then the other venues like MSG as well as the the cable networks the regional sports networks in the other in the other thing that's the thing they're spinning off i think it's a smart move i mean if you're an investor you want these things to be separated because they are very disparate types of businesses at the same time, you then have to now look at, well, the media business is that much more naked, right? Um, it's still sort of the bigger part of the business, but it is structurally challenged, right? Like regional sports networks, they were all the rage not too long ago, but right. it's getting harder for them to justify the, the high rates that they continue to charge the cable operator. So that's going to be hard going forward. Yeah, no, it absolutely, that has been, it's tr it felt like it turned on a dime, really. And uh, that brings us to what's happening yeah. with the movie theaters. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Cineworld, the owner of Regal, is preparing to file for bank within weeks now as they struggle to rebuild uh, attendance following the pandemic. You know, how much has, Ed, do you think AMC's meme stock moment distracted us from what's really going on in this business? Right. I mean, this is a clear example. If you are if you operate movie theaters, you either have to be a meme stock or you file for bankruptcy. Right. right. These are not great choices. Um, and I think I think you're you put you hit the nail on the head. I think the, the whole AMC trade has sort of obscured the bigger picture. Right. Which is that movie theaters, they're not doing so great. You know, there are only so many top guns you can release in a given year. You know, and even despite the strength of Disney and the Marvel franchise, you know, it's it's there's going to be a lot of off years. And I think the whole 
sort of the culture of going to movie theaters has really shifted. I mean, people are staying at home or they're going to other things. They're not spending as much. There are still inflationary pressures. You know, going to the movie theaters was a cheap form of entertainment. It, you know, certainly cheaper than a Broadway show or going to like a theme park the way, you know, that Disney has. So that's, that was always the, the sort of the value of it. Now it's sort of like, well, that's not so cheap anymore. And, you know, I think movie theaters are sort of at this crossroads of like, what do they really want to be? Do they want to still be that cheap entertainment? They probably can't charge as much as they used to, or certainly not at the concessions. Either that, or they have to go high end. They have right. to make it like such a great experience that you're willing to shell out more money for it. So the identity of movie theaters, that's the challenge for them. Has there been real differentiation between what AMC is doing and what the likes of Regal or others are? And should we just expect at some point, you know, it used to be so important that you had multiple players in this industry. It's obviously not anymore. Could they collapse at all with a name like AMC kind of taking the crown? Maybe they've been more innovative, more tech first, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't know if that still has, you know, antitrust implications, but I, I do wonder. There are antitrust implications to that kind of consolidation, though at the same time, they're so structurally challenged, like it probably needs to happen in some form. But even after that, it, let's say that goes forward and that's allowed, I mean, what do they then do? I mean, AMC did try that tack towards subscriptions not too long ago, and that really did not work. You know, people, there's always a, a small uh, segment of the, of the user base that were sort of like abusing it, and they were losing money on that. And so it was an interesting idea. They tried to innovate, but it really didn't work. Maybe it was a failure of execution. Maybe they can go at it again. But I don't really see what that sort of technology solution is other than, you know, they become their own streamer in a weird way, which that sort of defeats the whole purpose. So I, I don't see what that, that solution is going to be. Of course, I'm not in that business, so I'm not necessarily uh, the best person to, to think about that. But again, from an outsider's perspective, as an investor, their structured challenge, I, I just question the whole value of it going forward. They really need to shift how they think about themselves is, is, is my estimation. Are they high end, low end? You know, if they're, if they're neither one, then I, I, don't, I don't think consumers are going to see the value of it. All right. Well said, Ed. Great to have you here. Thanks so much. Ed Lee Anytime. with the New York Times. Speaking of meme stocks, still ahead, Bed Bath shares plunging after GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen exited his stake. They're down 40% today. Will he face regulatory scrutiny and what happens to the company now? We'll explore. Plus, it's no secret that lower income households suffer the most from high inflation. So how are they changing their spending habits? The numbers and the companies most affected. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with J&J and Merck, the healthcare trade leading the way today. About 10 stocks are in the green. Boeing and sales Force the biggest laggards with the Dow overall down 217. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Welcome back to the exchange. Dow was down 319 points at the lows, so we're about 100 points off that level. But you can see the red arrows across the board. The Nasdaq down just about 2% now. Shares of Wayfair are plunging after saying they'll cut 870 jobs or 5% of the global workforce and about 10% of its corporate team. These shares are down 84% from their pandemic highs of 369. DoorDash is ending its delivery partnership with Walmart next month. Ends a four-year agreement. The shares of DoorDash are down about about three and a half percent now they've come off their lows and Starbucks is dissolving its COO role at the end of the fiscal year. The current COO will be transitioning to an advisory role before departing the company. Member interim CEO Howard Schultz also leaving Starbucks at the end of the calendar year. S Bucks shares down about four percent since he took over in April. We could get an update on the CEO search at the company's annual meeting next month. Starbucks down one and a half percent today. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update uh, right now. NACE, the nation's largest employer, Walmart, expanding its abortion coverage for its 1.6 million employees. According to an internal memo and effective immediately, Walmart's health care plans will cover abortion services and travel costs for employees and their family members who are insured through Walmart when the pregnancy presents a health risk to the mother. The U.S. government is setting aside doses of the monkeypox vaccine in advance of more than a dozen planned pride parades over the next few months. 50,000 doses will be allocated based on factors like the size of the event and risk of the attendees. Officials say they are sending up to 2,000 doses to North Carolina for a parade this weekend. And after a summer of flight delays and cancellations, the Department of Transportation is telling airlines to improve customer safety or they will force them to, customer service, excuse me, or they will force them to. The DOT also announced that it is creating a website that it hopes will easily show each airline's policies regarding cancellations and delays. And tonight on the news with Shep Smith, the latest from Ukraine, more Ukrainian strikes behind Russian lines. Are they able to push the Russians back? More on that tonight on the news. Meantime, Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you. Coming up, a special consumer edition of Three Buys into Bail to cap off a big week of retail earnings, including this name up nearly 40% from its lows two months ago. Can the retail rally roll on? That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We started the year with a vicious sell-off. Now we've had a rip-roaring two-month rebound. So as the dust settles and with the market's overall valuation back to pretty normal 18 times, what should you be buying and what should you be selling out of right now? Joining us is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, and she has our consumery, retail-y focused three buys and a bail for us today. Gina, welcome. Let's start with Amazon. Growth name for you. Say it's devi- it defies the recession rhetoric. The stock up 30% in two months, and you like it here. We do. I mean, if anything, I think the thing that the fly in the ointment for all of the recession talk was that consumption just didn't let up. Um, it changed, but it didn't let up. And Amazon was a big beneficiary because people continued uh, to order from Amazon. So Amazon's guidance was actually quite positive. Uh, their revenues were positive. And then remember that Amazon also has a tech play, which is Amazon Web Services, which is one of those stories that we really believe in. Uh, so, you know, all in all, we think it, it you know, even 
even at the the valuation that Amazon has, uh, we think it's still something that you want to hold in your portfolio. All right. You also like Kimberly Clark. That is name number two. That's a buy for you here. A, a pricing power play. You say defensive yeah. name to own no matter what the economic cycle. And hey, it's up six percent the past three months. Yeah, and you know Kimberly Clark has definitely shown a lot of talk around recession, or not just recession, but inflation fears, and and what that's going to do to consumers. Um, finding companies that are not only quality, um, have good cash flows um, and revenues, but also finding companies that can flex into their pricing power, um, that's important. And Kimberly Clark was not only able to maintain their earnings; in fact, their rev their their sales volumes fell a little bit. But remember, people still need things like diapers and feminine care and adult care and tissues and cleaning products. All of those things are still things that you need. And they were able to actually slightly raise prices, expand their margins and expand their profitability during that inflation scare. 23 times uh, PE, they stick with it. And finally, Constellation Brands, a serving of defensiveness. We might not usually think of it that way, but you say, look, it's rivaling Kimberly Clark. It's up 7% in the past three months. Absolutely. And one of the storylines out of uh, out of Constellation is that not only are their numbers kind of trending in line with previous like pre um, pandemic and even pandemic months, but they're actually um, running a little ahead of those, which is to say that demand is still very strong. You know, these are brands like Corona. These are not expensive brands. And so as the as the 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 storyline goes that we might have to get defensive, this seems to be one of those companies and one of those names that just continues to perform. All right. Now, those are the buys. Let's bring us to the bail then which is, drumroll please, Best Buy. Why don't you like it? You think Walmart could be a warning here? Well, I think the Walmart earnings were a little bit of warning for, for all retail. Remember that, that, that the, the consumer continued, but what they bought continued to change. Uh, and we think Best Buy was really at the, at the you know, losing end of that. Best Buy is a big box store. They are selling some high-priced electronics, and we just think that those are not the things that, that, that consumers are willing to spend money on right now. And if anything, um, you know, the continued uh, shortage of parts and supply chain issues has affected that kind of part of the market the most. And so we just think that Best Buy as a, as a, as a place to put your money right now just isn't a great place. There we have it. Three buys, one bail. Stick a cork in it for Constellation Brands. Gina, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Gina Sanchez. Still ahead, another retailer shares Bed Bath sinking on news that activist investor Ryan Cohen has cashed out of his entire position in the company. They're down more than 40% just today. We have the details of his hasty exit next. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets. The Nasdaq is at session lows, down almost 300 points right now. That's more than 2%. The Dow down 262. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the exchange. Look at shares of Bed Bath and Beyond. I mean, this is literally a roller coaster. This way, literally a roller coaster. A return of meme stock mania had given the stock a massive lift over the past month. First, it doubled. Now, shares are plunging down 40% today on news that activist, investor, and meme trade celebrity Ryan Cohen has sold his entire position in the company only five months after taking a major stake. Let's get out to Leslie Picker with the timeline and the details behind this exit. It is all the talk of the town, Leslie. It certainly is, Kelly. Behold, before our very eyes, the disappearing meme-em. That's what happens when a meme stock 
erases the premium garnered from an investor with a cult-like retail following after he or she cashes out. Let's take a step back here. As you mentioned, the timeline. It was a little more than five months ago when Ryan Cohen, the billionaire founder of Chewy.com and GameStop chairman, revealed his stake in Bed Bath & Beyond, accompanied by a letter to the board pushing for changes. The next trading day, on March 7th, the stock soared 34%. That nearly mirrors today's price action with shares down about 40% currently on news last night that Cohen cashed out the entirety of his stake. And the stock saw its fair share of ups and downs in the interim, reaching a near-term high of more than $27 a share in late March after Cohen got three directors onto Bed Bath's board. In late June, the stock traded below 5 bucks a share after reporting subpar quarter and ousting its CEO. This week, BBBY shares uh, surged back up into the 20s after a few bearish analyst calls rallied the stock's aficionados on Reddit, and confusion over a few SEC filings seemed to indicate that Cohen was newly bullish. But a source close to Cohen told me that, in fact, he actually hasn't purchased any security in Bed Bath since late March, and then, of course, capitalized on this week's gains to mint about $60 million. Kel? So do you think there's going to be a regulatory probe here, Leslie? I, there's no evidence or no reason why there should be. The filings were all out there, as confusing as the filings were. And this is something that I talked about earlier on Squawk on the Street, the fact that it, is, it wasn't totally clear from the filing, if you know, you're a retail investor or someone who's not as familiar with them, uh, that the, the new filing earlier this week, it looked like he was buying new calls that were super, super out of the money, super, super bullish. And it wasn't clear that he actually had disclosed those earlier, that there was a buyback that changed kind of the percentage of his holdings because it shrank the denominator. So it made it look like he was owning more. But really, that was just due to kind of some technicalities surrounding the stock. So I think it's more on the education side of things uh, where there needs to be changes made because the filings themselves can be confusing uh, for people who may not necessarily call themselves professional SEC filing readers. He's on Twitter. I mean, he could have clarified the miscommunication. I also wonder where it leaves the company itself. Um, you know, this has been quite a distraction and opportunity. I mean, everyone's been saying, if you're going to see the shares pop, go ahead. If you're going to issue equity, try to save the business. Like that's the time to do it. And now maybe that window is closed. Yeah. I mean, that's the key question now. I, I was just reading about Kirkland and Kirkland and Ellis and some other restructuring uh, experts who are going to be quite busy uh, in the next few weeks just with a whole host of situations. It's unclear what the future holds for Bed Bath, but of course, one of the big benefits to finding yourself as a, um, you know, subject of a, a meme uh, stock is that you can take advantage of a higher valuation. You see the difference between Cineworld right now and what's going on at AMC. Same business model, two of the biggest theater operators. Cineworld uh, owns Regal Theaters, and Cineworld is now reportedly prepping a Chapter 11 filing, preparing to go bankrupt, essentially, whereas AMC is, is issuing, um, you know, doing this new issuance that will start trading on uh, Monday. It won't raise any money for them because they've kind of tapped out on that front, but it's a, a new separate class of shares that they could one day uh, potentially tap that well. Great point. Uh, what a dizzying ride it's been for all of these stocks. <laughs> Leslie, thank you very much. Trying to sort it out for us, our Leslie Picker. Still ahead, my next guest has been bullish on the muni market all year, but says things are starting to change. She doesn't necessarily mean for the better. So where is he finding value and what are three potential headwinds? We have that next.
Welcome back, everybody. Investors are typically drawn to munis because they're tax exempt and often have a pretty high yield status, pretty boring, reliable. But Refinitiv Lipper showing outflows of $220 million this week, $635 million last week. And now that the Inflation Reduction Act has passed, there could be more headwinds ahead for this piece of the fixed income universe, like deteriorating credit, the minimum uh, tax rate, and poor technicals. Let's just end this segment before we even start. Tom Koslick is head of Muni Strategies and Credit at Hilltop Securities. Tom, what's going on? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. I appreciate it. So, you know, one of the things that I spend a good amount of time, you know, not just in the last year or two, but over the years doing, is explaining to our clients, uh, you know, based on the things that are coming out of Washington, the sequestration, that the 2017 Tax Act, you know, how those types of events are going to positively or negative impact, negatively impact public finance, right? Fiscal policy in the last year and a half has absolutely had a impact. The Rescue Plan Act was very positive. I mean, that is one of the reasons of why it is that I've been talking about this golden age of public finance, because there's there was $650 billion that came out of that Rescue Plan Act last year that is flowing directly to public finance entities. But then again, the infrastructure package that passed last year really was kind of a credit neutral. But where the Inflation Reduction Act is concerned, I'd say that is shaping up to be kind of a dud. I mean, to tell you the truth, if not, and that might even be uh, understating it because the tax policy that was included in that, that 15% corporate tax rate, uh, that there was an inadvertent, uh, I think, way that is going to limit participation of some large banks and large insurance companies and that's in tax exempts and that's not necessarily going to be a good thing for municipals. That's a really interesting point. Let me go back uh, to what you said that basically you're going to you're becoming more concerned now about state and local finances post pandemic. You think the pension issues are going to come back to the fore? Mm -hmm. So uh, I still uh, I there's a very positive credit landscape right now. But I would not describe that positive credit landscape as being structural. It's not structurally positive. It's not necessarily going to continue year to year. The numbers are going to look good this year. The numbers are going to look, look good la next year. The reason for that is because of all that federal money. So what I'm concerned about, what I'm talking to investors about right now, is I want them to trade out of some of the state and local governments that have you know, where their pension liabilities are larger than what they should be. That's one of the big things that I'm talking to investors about right now before before cre the credit landscape really deteriorates. And that's obviously top of mind. A lot of people own this stuff. I mean, there are parts of the market you think will continue to do well. You actually like mass transit and transportation. You like health care. Is that yeah, right? And, and that and, and that's a that's a little bit of an against the grain call, to tell you the truth, because sure. there's so much there's so much headline risk right now about transportation, the future of work and how transportation and mass transit is going to react. The numbers still don't look good. Uh, but I think what's going to end up happening where mass transit and transportation is concerned is I think that uh, there are going to be solutions for funding. And I and I really like going against the grain on that one. One of the other things that I really like is kind of mid tier health care. That's another place where I think uh, municipal investors can find some additional yield. Do you overall, so we know we started this year with a very challenged performance in the asset class. Now we have rates starting to go back up again, that, you know, nearing 3% on the 10-year. I mean, do you expect this performance to dip back in the red uh, in the months ahead? I think that there's going to be some volatility where that's concerned. Uh, that being said, 
when you compare where we, the, the absolute level of where we are now and where we're likely to be over the next three to six months compared to where we were in January and February, I really like where we are, where yields are concerned. And most of the municipal investors that I'm talking to are looking at this from a more long-term horizon. And so they, they really like where yields are kind of on a relative basis. All right, Tom, we'll leave it there. Great to check in with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Kelly. Tom Koslick with Hilltop. Still ahead, rising food prices hitting lower-end consumers particularly hard. It's changing where and how much they spend. That could actually be helping this stock, the name and why, next. Also, take a look at shares of Occidental Petroleum. U.S. regulators have authorized Berkshire Hathaway to buy up to 50% of its common stock. Berkshire filed an application with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, back in early July for permission to make this purchase. We know they've been involved with the shares for quite some time. Axie is now up 6.5% on news that Berkshire could buy up to 50% of the company. We're back after this. Welcome back. Rising prices have led lower income consumers to change their spending habits in several categories, especially food. Kate Rogers is looking at the impact that's had across the restaurant industry. She joins me now with some of the stocks that are the biggest winners and losers. Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, we've heard all earnings season long about consumers at different income levels seeking value, with some brands emphasizing the lower-end consumers starting to pull back a bit. New data from NPD Group underscores that point in the food space broadly, with lower-income consumers stretching dollars both at and away from home by eating more frozen and shelf-stable foods and also cutting back on restaurant visits. Right now, NPD says households with incomes under $75,000 are eating about 89% of their meals and snacks at home. That's up from 88% in 2020. Also, nearly half of lower-income families said they will purchase more private label and less expensive brands compared to what they were doing a year ago. On the restaurant side, there's pullback as well. During the pandemic's first two years, restaurant visits dropped across all income groups, but now they're most pronounced in those households under $75,000 annually. Those homes under $45,000 with kids cut back on five visits per person in the quarter, which NPD says drove a 2% decline in total restaurant visits versus a quarter ago. What's more, about 20% of households under $45,000 annually said they're not visiting restaurants at all right now due to their budgets. So what names could stand to a chance here to kind of hold up? McDonald's and Yum! Brands both expressed confidence at hanging on to consumers with value this quarter. Chipotle said some lower-income consumers are pulling back, but that they're not the core consumer for that brand. Starbucks actually said it saw no trade down, and that's a pricier product typically. And Papa John's CEO did tell us there is no better business in a recession than the pizza business. Kelly, back so over to we'll you. We'll call those some of the stalwart names, Kate. Mm-hmm. What about those that are really feeling the brunt of this? Yeah, so if you look kind of at a six-month uh, chart, you have to imagine a lot of the casual names would be hardest hit because that's more of a sit-down experience, tends to be a little pricier, more tips involved, etc. Darden is a name that Bank of America had called out as doing well in the last recession due to value at Olive Garden. So that's one name that could hold up. A lot of these casual brands are toying, remember, with you know mobile order and pickup with delivery, kind of out of their traditional comfort zone to try and lure customers back in. But you can't get away from the fact that they do tend to just be a higher price ticket at the end of the day. Is the point also, Kate, that as you said, the, the people are substituting by just eating more 
at home, and maybe that just benefits the grocery trade. And not only eating at home, because remember, groceries are getting more expensive and, and tend to be outpacing restaurant menu price inflation, right? But lower-income consumers are looking for more frozen food, more shelf-stable food. They're eating more uh, pasta, the NPD group said. So certain products are doing uh, better with that income group because they tend to be a little bit lower priced. Yeah, the loss of those trips that you mentioned, it, that's a huge drop uh, in foot traffic, as you cited. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rogers Thank reporting. You. While cracks may be showing up in the lower-end consumer, higher-end still going strong and spending big on classic cars. We have more details coming up in Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.